Hi, it's Ariana. Hi, it's Greg. As a listener to Climate One, we know you care about how climate disruption is affecting all of us now and into the future. I'm guessing you already do several things in the spirit of climate action. Here's another one: giving a donation to us to continue bringing you shows about the causes and solutions to the climate crisis. You can do that at climateone.org/donate. We offer all our podcasts and radio shows for free, but it takes time, effort, and resources to produce new episodes every week. When you give, you help us pay for the talented staff, equipment, and materials we need to make the show. And you'll join a group of other dedicated funders and community supporters who keep Climate One on the air. If you're inspired by the guests and conversations we curate, please consider making a gift today at climateone.org/donate. Thank you for your support and thanks for listening. How will we power our future? Can we create a healthy and clean economy? Climate One at the Commonwealth Club is at the forefront of the global debate about energy, economy, and the environment. Bringing together the brightest and most provocative leaders of our time, Climate One is the place where big ideas get heard. With thoughtful and insightful discussions on policy, business, science, and culture, Climate One founder Greg Dalton gets to the heart of the matter. It's our future. It's time to come together. Welcome to Climate One, a conversation about America's energy, economy, and environment. To understand any of them, you have to understand them all. I'm Greg Dalton. Today, we're discussing skiing in the age of climate disruption. Rising temperatures are turning snow into slush, shrinking ski seasons, and causing resorts to worry about their future. They're investing in energy efficiency and working to get off dirty coal power. They're also stepping into politics. More than 100 ski areas joined other companies in calling on the U.S. government to adopt rules cutting the carbon pollution that could put them out of business. Over the next hour, we'll look at the meltdown in the mountains with our live audience at the Commonwealth Club in San Francisco. Our program today will be in two parts. First, we'll hear from a scientist, a reporter, and a professional snowboarder. In the second segment, we'll hear from the chiefs of the Aspen, Jackson Hole, and Whistler Ski Resorts. First, the voice of science and ski enthusiasts. They can be both. Porter Fox is features editor at Power Magazine, and author of the new book Deep: The Story of Skiing and the Future of Snow. Ann Nolan is professor of geosciences and hydroclimatology at Oregon State University. And Jeremy Jones, founder and CEO of Protect Our Winters, and a professional snowboarder. Please welcome them to Climate One. And Nolan, let's begin with you. Tell us about the recent snow trends. What science tells us about recent snowfall, snowpack in North America? In North America, we find that over the last several decades, there have been on the order of about one and a half to two percent declines in snow in the spring per decade. So that means that the snow season is getting shorter. The lower elevations are getting hit hardest. That they're having more rain on snow events. Uh, higher frequency of warm winters, where you've got, you know, just temperatures, storm temperatures, really close to zero, where where you can just kind of go from from snow and shift a little bit right into rain, and so that that has impacts on um, kind of the mom and pop ski areas that 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 are situated in that lower elevation zone, and and uh, beyond that, though, the uh, you know the hydrologic impacts, the impacts on water resources are also significant because you're getting rain runs off. Whereas snow is that reservoir that holds that moisture there until spring. Right. So there's lots of water impacts, but one to two percent a decade seems like who would notice, right? I mean, has that had much of an impact? It does, because if you think about the frequency of warm winters, and I define the warm winter as 
any any month in the core winter months, you know, December, January, February, where you have sort of an average temperature of zero or higher, meaning you're going to get rain. You know, not every storm's going to be raining, but nobody wants to come show up at the lodge when there's drizzle going on. So if you look at today's uh, uh, number of, of warm winters at ski areas, particularly in the Pacific Northwest, where we have, you know, sort of a lot of, lot of warm winters, um, uh, you know, maybe 30 to, to uh, even 50% of some of these ski areas will have, have warm winters now. That's going to get pushed up to 70, 80, even 100% of the winters in 20 to 50 years. With a two-degree temperature increase, we could see a huge increase in the frequency of warm winters. And you're talking two degrees Celsius. Two okay. degrees Celsius, yeah. Um, uh, okay, so for Americans, that's one and something. Multiply change. that by yeah. 1.8. Okay, the uh, Porter Fox, you've been working uh, at Powder Magazine about 15 years. Have they noticed this 1% per decade? When, when did the climate reality kind of sink in there? I, I think they noticed that seasons were getting shorter on both ends, ending a little earlier in the spring, starting a little later in the fall. Um, to be honest, we weren't totally aware of the numbers before the last couple of years um, uh, because it wasn't really in the mainstream media in, in, in a way that uh, got on our radar. So we were you know, going around doing ski stories and whatnot, noticing that there's less snow. Um, and then uh, when we started to look into it some more and, and read some of Anne's work and see some of the studies that Protect Our Winters uh, has done recently, um, we were shocked, everyone on the staff. You know, I've been writing about skiing for 20 years, and um, I, I was totally surprised by the timeline and the, the quantity of snow that has already disappeared. So you said the last couple of years. So Al Gore's Inconvenient Truth came out six years ago. That didn't <coughs> That's, you register know, it, at all? It, it certainly did register, but it was um, kind of in this large abstract realm of like, hey, there's a meteorite that just went by the planet. Wow, that was kind of scary and close. And, um, you know, these are people, our, our demographic, and I can speak for, you know, myself and some of the editors I work with. It wasn't in our backyard yet. It wasn't something that was like, oh, my God, this is changing my life right now. Um, it was and po- polar bears in 2100, right? Exactly. It, it, was, it was really far off. And um, like the, the folks at the National Snow and Ice Data Center, I spent some time there. And um, they said, you know, snow and ice are this first visual indicator of how climate change is going to change our world. It is a visible polygon that shrinks and expands, and it's shrinking very quickly right now. And it grabbed sea ice, you know, disappearing sea ice first grabbed uh, people's attention. And then um, glaciers in Europe, which have lost half of their volume in the last 50 years or last century approximately, and... and um, now it's starting to, to hit the U.S. West, and now masses of people see changes in their backyard. You know, you see grass growing on the slopes at, at Squaw Valley in January, and you think, wow, this is, uh, this is a different, different world. Looking at one winter is very dangerous in the world of climate change. We're talking about decades and centuries, but still um, that change is happening much faster than it ever has before in, in the history of the planet. Jeremy Jones, when did you first notice this, and what prompted you to start Protect Our Winners? Um, 
I started, I mean, I've been fortunate to spend my lifetime in the mountains. Um, and I would say there was different indicators growing up on Cape Cod. We heard, I mean, the, at first it was um, growing up on Cape Cod, always wanting to snowboard and studying the pilgrims, harsh winters, and going to my teacher, why don't we have harsh winters anymore? I want to go snowboard in the backyard and um, so that was <laughs> that was way ahead of Al Gore on that one. <laughs> um, but the a couple alarming things going to Europe. I um, spend time in Europe every year, and just seeing uh, in Chamonix, for example, you have this famous glacier that um, runs down the Valley Blanche, and it. Um, it's a very well-traveled ski run, and it ends, and they um, built a train, I think, in 1920 to take you from the end of the glacier back to town. And then um, Porter, you made it, like, and then they yeah. built the chairlift to take you from the end of the glacier to the train to get back to town. And now it's, um, it's an hour walk from the end of the glacier to get to the chairlift to get to the train. And... It's what, so that was alarming, but then as I started um, coming back, it would be like come back a year later and go, I used to be able to snowboard right here and to see this receding glacier. I mean, yes, glaciers recede a lot, but not at that rate. So that was first kind of major shock. And then the second one was um, I was in British Columbia in Prince Rupert uh, in February, and I was with a guy who was 30 years old, and there was grass on the ground, and went for a hike up his home mountain that no longer operates, and he's walking up the hill with his buddy, and he's telling me about growing up on this um, hill and pointing out jumps, and he was just very positive and upbeat and proud to show me his resort, and... Um, I said, well, why isn't it open anymore? And he said, well, it just doesn't snow here anymore. And I, that was a huge eye-opener of, here's a guy who's 30 who saw his home resort go away. And it started getting me thinking about climate change from a 30-year perspective and going, wow, what are, you know, am I going to be here at my home resort in 30 years going, hey, kids, check out this um, grassy knoll that used to be the best jump on the mountain. <laughs> uh, so... Those are two examples that um, that motivated me um, to kind of reluctantly become an environmentalist because uh, I realized that the mountains for sure were changing and that we have this um, – There's, I knew I had reach to skiers and snowboarders around the world and media like Powder that have been very uh, receptive with Protect Our Winners, and I just felt like – we need to come together and um, collectively protect our winners. How do you plan to do that? What is prote- how is Protect Our Winners going to save the industry and save the snow? Well, one thing I didn't realize when I started it was the complexities of climate change. And, and um, that's since I started it, I um, knew right away I needed to get the most educated scientists and, and voices and, and instrumental people, and Anne is an example of that. Um, but we 
We have a couple different facets, everything from um, focusing on we have a Hot Planet Cool Athlete program when we go into schools and educate kids on, hey, this is what the state of the climate, here's a bunch of solutions, um, This is you're adopting this problem, and um, here's some tools to hopefully help. To everything, we were just at Capitol Hill trying to um, – at least have the conversation on Capitol Hill. I'd love to say trying to pass climate legislation, but we're not even, we can't really have that conversation right now as a country. You know, we're, so we're focused on um, the EPA's rights to um, regulate um, emissions from power plants. So, And Nolan, how do we know that Humans are causing this. 1% variability. I mean, climate's been changing for hundreds of thousands of years. It's warming. What do you say to someone that says, well, the science isn't clear. It's not settled. Maybe we're not so sure that humans are causing the warming that's uh, these precipitation patterns. Well, I'll start by saying that the science is clear, and there are multiple lines of evidence that climate is changing and that humans are responsible for it. But I think perhaps the most convincing line of evidence is uh, when you – when you look at the um, type of carbon that's put into the atmosphere, we know that it's coming from burning fossil fuels. That's something that humans are responsible for. And then when you trace, the, go through the physics and incorporate that into a climate model and simulate and diagnose exactly how that increase in carbon dioxide then um, warms our atmosphere and, and, our, and the surface of our planet, we, we see that there even though there are multiple forcings, like multiple factors that are responsible for changes in climate, like solar radiation, uh, for instance, or uh, volcanic eruptions, um, the carbon dioxide is the, the number one um, forcing factor, the driving factor, and that is entirely due to humans. Humans burn fossil fuels, releasing carbon dioxide into the atmosphere, and that carbon dioxide from human impacts is responsible directly for the warming. And if you run the computer models, the climate simulations, without carbon dioxide, you can't even come close to matching the actual measurements of temperature. The only way you can get the models to fit what's really happening is by putting CO2 into the model. So we know diagnostically using those models that you have to have CO2 as that forcing factor. And that's and we know from our measurements that the CO2 is coming from human impacts. So those two lines of evidence together show that it's it's a, climate change is real and it's caused by people. And looking forward, are there certain regions that are more vulnerable than others? Is are the Rockies going to be okay because they're higher in the Northwest? Oh, they got some problems. I mean, is the science that precise that can tell you about regions and perhaps even states and resorts? Uh, well, if you're looking at it from a mountain perspective, there are certainly regions that are, are more vulnerable than others, and I would say the lower elevations are more vulnerable for snow. Um, the Arctic, as on a global scale, is more vulnerable uh, than, say, the, the mid-latitudes, and we've seen that significant increases in temperature and declines in seasonal snowpack in the Arctic. In fact, the Arctic has lost more seasonal snowpack, more rapidly, the, the declines in, in seasonal snowpack in the Arctic has been more rapid than the, than the declines in sea ice in the Arctic. Um, but back to mountains, though, the, 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 the big vulnerable areas are, in terms of snowpack, are the lower elevations where it's at risk of turning into rain. 
But I'd like to challenge us to think about mountains more broadly, not just as first world uh, destination resorts. Mountains are places, they're not just flat areas up high. They're, they're places where we have steep vertical gradients of climate, of biodiversity, and gradients of, of uh, hydrology. Um, I always say that water and ecosystem services flow down from the mountains, but people that live down in the lowlands, and it's the policies of humans and our demographic pressures that flow uphill and cause these um, rugged, somewhat isolated mountain environments and mountain peoples to be um, at risk. And so we've got at-risk snow, but we also have at-risk social, environmental systems in the mountain environments. And so most mountain environments are places where people, communities that tend to be more marginalized. The populations don't have economic clout. They don't have political clout. They don't have access to uh, productive lands necessarily. So it's a really, so they're facing challenges not just from climate, but also from human impacts due to policy and demographic pressures. So there's bigger impacts, things that here than, than sport and recreation. A lot, a lot at stake for people's livelihoods. Absolutely. Okay. Uh, Porter Fox, you've been driving around writing a series in Powder Magazine, The Future of Snow. Tell us about some of the things you saw and some of the, the reaction of people there is like, it ain't happening, it's not us. There was a, a politician in Montana you wrote about that basically said uh, global warming is going to be good for Montana. We could use some more warmth up here. Thank you very much. <coughs> Montana also uh, has a fairly large fossil fuel industry going there. And, and uh, ironically, a lot of the ski resort, ski area states in the West do as well, like Wyoming. Um, what I saw was uh, a full range. Uh, I was impressed with um, the people that I met in the Western U.S. who were very open-minded because they were seeing it. I spoke with uh, ski patrollers, avalanche experts, people who had lived in the mountains for over 50 years, and they said, yeah, I don't get snow in my yard anymore. You know, it doesn't get down to 35 below anymore, and certainly not more for, you know, not more than a day or two. Um, this was empirical evidence that these people had seen, and, and 30 years, you know, is way um, better evidence than four or five years that a ski bomb is like, oh, it's not snowing anymore. Um, this is way bigger than skiing. Uh, skiing is a recreational sport. It's something I've done since I was two years old and something that is, is very dear to me. But this is about snow as, as a part of the climate cycle in, in, uh, on the planet and part of the water cycle and an incredibly important resource on Earth that when snow starts to disappear, there is this line of dominoes that falls down that people have seen out in the western U.S. already with the wildfires and the, and the pine beetles and the, all of these things that kind of, you know, come from a lack of snowpack and a lack of steady uh, water supply. You know, snow is, the, is natural water storage. So people saw the effects. They were still trying to get their heads around the fact that humans can change things on that scale. This is a very difficult thing for people to understand. It's hard for me to understand. But I would believe a 1,000 uh, climate scientists who studied 2 million gigabytes of data and over 1,200 peer-reviewed studies, I would believe them before I would believe someone that says, yeah, I don't think this is happening. 
the same way that I would believe someone that said that killer meteorite is coming for your planet. I don't think anybody would doubt that scientist or doubt a doctor that says, I'm sorry, but you've got cancer. You don't say, I I don't think so. You might get a second opinion, but you're not going to be like, yeah, whatever, I'm going back to my life. Porter Fox is a features editor at Powder Magazine. We're talking about the future of skiing at Climate One at the Commonwealth Club. Our other guest hitter, Ann Nolan, professor from Oregon State University, and Jeremy Jones, founder of Protect Our Winters. I'm Greg Dalton. Uh, Ann Nolan, Porter Fox mentioned fires. There's been a lot of fires in ski areas. Sun Valley was threatened by fires. There's fires in the Sierras, terrible fires in Colorado. How does that impact water and the hydrology cycle in the mountains and, and perhaps ski resorts? There's a really strong relationship between fire and snow. And what we see is that when snowpacks decline, the forests themselves, which depend on that snow, become moisture-stressed. And moisture-stressed forests are a lot more vulnerable to things like pine beetle and wildfire. And once the, once the fires burn through the forest, especially if it's a really severe fire, the subsequent years, the snow melts off faster in burned areas. So maybe this isn't a big deal. Well, it turns out it is. It, it's about, uh, in the last 10 years, uh, there have been over um, 44,000 square kilometers of burned areas in the seasonal snow zone in the western U.S., and a disproportionate amount of that has been in the uh, Columbia River Basin. And so if you think about, okay, the snow's melting faster in these burned areas. These are all the headwaters of these rivers. That means that that snow is no longer being stored there. It's, it's flowing earlier. So you might have higher peak flows and then ultimately lower low flows in the dry time of the year. And so fire and snow and water in the streams are all intricately related. It's all linked. If you're uh, just joining us, there's many podcasts in the Climate Ones uh, section in iTunes that focuses on the, the impact of declining snowpacks on the Bay Delta in California and other water and, and climate impacts. Uh, Jeremy Jones, I'd like to ask you, given your concern about climate change, how do you, what do you think about helicopter skiing and burning fossil fuels to get to cool places and, and, uh, that are hard to get to? Is that something you're still doing? Um, I mean, on a personal level, I look at my whole carbon footprint. Uh, I continue to um, reduce where I can with still living my life. Um, with that, I you know, ten years ago, I used I used to spend probably twenty, thirty days in a helicopter. Uh, about six years ago. I stopped uh, using helicopters to access the mountains, um, but I don't. I look at my heli- you know, helicopter consumption is just right in line with the car I'm driving, the food I'm buying, every aspect of that. Um, with my snowboarding, I am a professional snowboarder. I still travel. I've always traveled. Um, I've kind of grown up as a traveler. It's um, I feel like I've learned a lot from travel. Uh, but these days, I it, say eight years ago, I used to um, chase the snow ten days here, seven days here, four days here. Now I'm doing um, one to two month-long trips. So kind of getting more bang for my buck. If I am hopping on an airplane, I try and uh, make it last, make it, you know, spend much more time at a place. 
And Nolan, what are you doing to manage your personal carbon footprint? I walk and I ride my bike. <laughs> but, you know, we made, uh, my, my family and I made a decision to live near our work. And I, I jokingly say I walk and I, my commute is actually just a three-minute walking commute. But we really <laughs> did design our lives to, so that we didn't have to walk, so that we didn't have to drive, I should say, to, to go out to eat. Or didn't, we don't have to drive to, to commute. We can ride our bikes to the grocery store. And, and we are showing our son that that's a way to live. And it's a, and we're lucky enough to live in a community in Corvallis, Oregon, where we can do that. And there's loads of bike paths, and it's really easy to ride a bike, even though it rains a lot in the winter. So um, that's what we do. Porter Fox, what are you doing, and what can an a- other average citizen listen to this do to reduce their carbon impact that's impacting uh, the snow industry? So. Uh, mobility is a big thing. Mobility is independence, especially for Americans in our history with cars. Um, I, uh, I burn veggie oil in my diesel station wagon, uh, as anybody who has ever ridden with, with me will tell you. It breaks down a lot. Um, and uh, I, uh, we compost our vegetables. We have a, we have a garden in the back, but I, yeah, I live in Brooklyn, New York, and I, I have to ride the subway. I, I took a plane out here. This, the, that is the, the structure of our world right now, and this is a transition. This is not a cut cold turkey. Um, and, you know, people can look up. They can go to, to Powell's website and, and look at the, the, the uh, seven steps for the, uh, the Powell Pledge and see what they Powell can do. Powell is uh, protect our winners. Protect our winners, yeah. Um, you know, things like if everybody in New York changed their light bulbs to CFLs, you could run the subway off of the electricity savings. Um, you know, there's, there's very simple things that we can do. They say 15 to 20% of the first uh, steps in conserving energy is very easy to do. You walk to the store instead of drive. It's the next 20% that is very, very difficult. Now you're not going on vacation to the Bahamas because you can't afford to burn that fuel in the plane to get down there. And that's when you're starting to take people's rights away. The first 20%, we can do that. But the way, the position that we are in right now, it is going to take far more than that to um, avoid going above the two degrees Celsius safety threshold. We're talking about uh, skiing and snow at Climate One. Uh, we'd like to invite your participation. We're going to put a uh, microphone out here and invite your um, comments. Uh, the, lane, the line will start with our producer, Jane Ann, over there. And uh, so the, uh, the mic will come out now. And um, Oh, it's there. Uh, and uh, if you're on this side, we invite you to come over uh, through that door over there rather than crossing these camera lines. And uh, this is often one of the most vibrant, interactive parts of the conversation. So please, all these skiers and like, no one's jumping up? This is crazy. <laughs> Let's include our audience questions. Welcome to Climate One. Hi, thanks. And can you just talk about the Sierras a little closer to home? Anything you can tell us about the future of snow in the Sierras? Well, um, what we found is that uh, if, if you look at the frequency of warm winters and what I call at-risk snow, which is snow that's at risk of falling as rain, that um, the lower elevation resorts are, are, are likely going to have some significant negative impacts. And um, even places like Squaw Valley are, are likely to have uh, almost a doubling in the number of warm winters with a 2 degrees Celsius warming. 
how about time frames? I think about uh, children growing up now. Do you, geez, do you teach your kid to ski? Is that, is that still going to be able to – is it going to be around? Do we know time frames? I know that your discipline, Ann Nolan, often thinks about decades or centuries, right? So it's hard to say 10, 20 years. You'd like to have a few centuries to work with long time scales, longer than humans are used to. Do we really know? You know, it's interesting. We always think of climate change as something that's going to happen in the future, but I look at it as something that's already been happening. So, for instance, one of the sites that we've been looking at in Oregon where they've been, you know, people have been going out manually measuring the snowpack every month since 1941, we see um, a 70% decline in 70 years in the peak snowpack at that elevation. So, you know, it's not – when you talk about time frame – I, I don't know how fa- how fast that's going to happen, but you know, about for every um, one degree Celsius increase in temperature, the snow line increases, you know, vertically about um, 150 meters. So you know, triple that and add a little bit for feet. Um, and and so uh, when we think about maybe by mid-century that we would see about maybe a, a degree increase in temperature, but it's going to vary by region. You know, areas that are close to the coast and already pretty warm, even a half a degree increase, you're going to see huge impacts, a big switch from snow to rain. So it really depends on how close you are to that melting threshold. You know, and there are a few modelers who have have kind of stuck their necks out and um, put a number on this, like like Daniel Scott's work Mm -hmm. at the University of Waterloo in Ontario, and they've been studying climate change and its effect on skiing since the 1980s. And uh, he, he authored the paper that suggested that uh, in the next 30 years, half of the 103 ski resorts in the Northeast will have to close because of lack of snow reliability. And that's, that's a radical change, and that is in our lifetimes, some of our lifetimes, and definitely our kids' lifetimes. And in that report, he said that no viable ski resorts in Massachusetts or Connecticut, and certainly a shrinking in New York and, and New, Hampshire, New Hampshire. Let's have our next audience question. Welcome. Yes. First, I just have a comment. I like that first 20% is very doable, and I think that's what we're working on. And I just noticed an article today that actually states that U.S. carbon dioxide emissions dropped last year. That's fabulous. So obviously we're paying attention to this 20%. People are starting to, to get it. So give me some good news. <laughs> I mean, you just told me we're going to close all these resorts. I've been skiing for 55 years, and I see it. My question is, Is all right, we are starting the path. We're doing our 20% the first. Is this going to affect, am I going to see snow coming back, or is this just a battle that we're going to always fight? And Nolan, are we just slowing the rate of decline, or is it a turnaround story? I'm afraid to say it's slowing the rate of decline. I mean, this is a carbon dioxide in the atmosphere is a long-lived gas, and it's we should have been doing this 50 years ago. And it's great that we're doing it now because it's going to help the next generation and the generation after that. Climate change is the biggest challenge of this generation and the next, and we absolutely should be making that change now. And there's lots of positive stories out there about fantastic technologies that are happening, a lot of progress organizations people are creating. Uh, there's, there is some light in this as we go down this downward slope. There's definitely some sunshine. Let's have our, uh, our audience question. Welcome. Thank you. 
So I think we all know it's a pretty complex problem, and I think it's great that we have representation from public, private, and nonprofit on the stage right now. And I'm wondering if any of you have any thoughts on either the greatest opportunities for cross-sectoral collaboration or the greatest challenges that are limiting that from really helping progress things forward. I think it's great the, the flyer includes the POW collaboration with the Mountain Collective, so hopefully it's something that you've thought about a little bit. We'd like to tackle that one. We've got about five minutes left. Um, I'll just say it's a, I've been, um, since 2007, definitely been, had my hands in this, and I think it's a, it's a subtle um, step here. And, I mean, we have Aspen, who has definitely been on the forefront of, raise, of sounding the alarm and accepting um, what the future holds. But I think it's a, a huge step from a resort perspective to have the resorts that are here today to speak on this matter. And um, I think it's maybe the first time or one of the first times that we've had a collection of the world's best resorts come and speak on this matter. So it's a, um, it's a huge step forward just to, you know, that we're having this conversation with the top resorts. Jeremy Jones is founder of Protect Our Winners. Let's have our next question. Welcome. Thanks. As a snowboarder, what can I do to tell my favorite ski area that I care about climate change? Jeremy Jones? Well, I think you should ask that question um, to the second group of panels because you'll hear it from the head honchos um, how your voice can be heard the best. But uh, I think, you know, the comment box is using your voice, and that's one thing we've learned with Protect Our Winners is we've gotten more active with op-ed pieces and um, and just being more vocal about the issue and, and, and getting it out in the media because it, it does, you know, the... It's still a you know the the power of your voice and, and these the media outlets um, it it is effective and it and it does trickle up to the the head honchos if they hear it from enough people. Let's have our next question. Welcome to Climate One. Hi, thanks. Uh, I guess I had a question for for Porter and Jeremy. Um, I guess given the unique audience maybe uh, of skiers and snowboarders. Um, do you think there's a specific opportunity there to reach out to this demographic to make a change that maybe is different from other, you know, there's a lot of advocacy groups out there trying to work on climate change legislation and influence people? Porter Fox? I, I think absolutely. Um, this is a very influential demographic. It's, I mean, let's face it, skiing is, uh, was the sport of the leisure class from the very beginning. Um, these are people who uh, are influencers. They have contacts in uh, big government, big business. Um, the idea here, uh, once again, is, yes, we want to save skiing, but we want skiers to literally help save the world. And that's what we're going for. That's what Protect Our Winters has been doing for a long time now by taking the collective voice of the skiing industry and skiers and taking that to Washington and saying, hey, this is really important, and you guys need to listen to us. And they listen to them, and they have done incredible work, um, and uh, especially recently, just building up to uh, Obama, Obama's climate action plan. I mean, that was, um, you know, he didn't mention that there was melting snow and ice in the mountains, and everybody downstream of there should be worried just because he felt like saying that. 
that was uh, that was a message straight from Pow and straight from the ski areas that the 108 ski areas that signed the uh, climate change declaration, uh, which was fantastic. Um, some of them are, are here tonight. Um, so it, it's it's a great demographic and a, and a very powerful one if we can come together. Let's have our next question for this segment. Yes, welcome. Hi, thank you. Um, I think it's really exciting to see. I've been following climate change since, for I don't know, forever, I guess, since I was in high school or middle school. But um, kind of the elephant in the room are countries like China and India, you know, tons of people, tons of emissions. You could say they're kind of going through what we went through in the colonial revolution. So how do you guys think um, emissions from China and more developing countries can be controlled if they're giving, you know, such a large proportion of um, what's going on in the world since it's a global system? And, Ellen, let's have you answer that, and then we'll get to the, the second segment. China can, whatever we can do, feel good about, China can blow it all away. I know. <laughs> I wish I could answer that question. I, I'm not an expert in policy, and I, I feel like, okay, well, if we all start, you know, driving electric cars and China starts sequestering carbon, then we can fix this. But, you know, carbon dioxide is a pollutant. And China has a pollution problem, and they need to address that first and foremost. I mean, that's an immediate health problem of, of just monumental uh, level. So, I, you know, I think it's all – it's really related. I, I apologize that I really can't speak to that policy issue, but I think it's really significant. We need to keep thinking about it and be more imaginative, but it's a really broad problem. We need to uh, wrap, wrap this part up, and then we're going to have another group of guests come up in here and join us. We're talking at Climate One about the – the snow and the future of skiing. Our guests on this segment have been Jeremy Jones, founder and CEO of Protect Our Winners, and Nolan, professor of geosciences and hydroclimatology at Oregon State University, and Porter Fox, features editor at Powder Magazine. So thank you all both for, all for coming, and let's give them a round of applause. Thank you very much. We're talking about the future of the skiing at Climate One. We're joined now by the heads of three destination ski resorts. Jerry Bland is president of the Jackson Hole Mountain Resort in Wyoming. Dave Brownlee is president and CEO of Whistler Blackcomb in British Columbia. And Mike Kaplan, president and CEO of Aspen Snowmass in Colorado. Please welcome them to Climate One. Um, welcome, gentlemen. Uh, Let's start, Dave Brownlee, with you. How would you characterize the health of the ski industry? We've just heard about declining snowpack, et cetera. How's the health of the industry right now? Actually, the overall health of the industry is actually uh, really strong, Uh, you know, what we see out there, and certainly in in North America and in Europe. But if you look at actually, um, you know, the last 10 years in North America, you see actually increasing revenues, um, you know, increasing investment in the sport. I mean, we've come off uh, two of our tougher years over the last couple of years, and it's actually been very resilient, uh, you know, as we go forward. So uh, we actually are very positive about our industry, and uh, we think that, um, you know, we're going to continue to be a very uh, um, a positive enterprise and business well into the future. Mike Kaplan, uh, a lot of the... Mike Kaplan, a lot of the ski travel in the United States is headed toward the Rocky Mountains, uh, and resorts are doing a lot to reduce their energy impact, but a lot of the impact is really the flight there. So what is being done to, and that's outside your direct control, but destination skiing, uh, you, can do, you can do recycling and all sorts of things, but it's that flight there. A lot of people go to Aspen Snowmass, private jets. So let's talk about that aspect of the impact. 
you know, from our standpoint, um, I'd say the, the biggest opportunity uh, is to talk to people about those impacts, right? Um, you happen to be flying to Aspen to come on vacation or you're flying to uh, somewhere else to go visit kids or whatever it is. So um, rather than view it as, oh, well, don't come here uh, because you're having an impact in the environment, we see it as an opportunity to say, you know what, come here, enjoy the snow, and think about it for a second. Do you want to enjoy that snow uh, for years into the future? Do you want to enjoy that snow with your kids? Um, so we take it as an opportunity to say, guess what, there's a connection between flying out here, your carbon footprint, and things you do every day, and uh, the things you'd like to enjoy uh, doing with your discretionary dollars and discretionary time. So we view it as, a, as an opportunity to educate and, and hopefully influence and get them to activate around, hey, we need to do something about this. Jerry Bland, uh, one thing that resorts are doing is uh, making snow. Snow is declining. Uh, resorts are investing a lot in, in snowmaking technology, which involves using water, a scarce resource, and typically burning some fossil fuels, which makes it worse. So talk about the irony of snowmaking as a response to declining snow. Well, it's become, honestly, a mitigation to some of the things we're talking about here this evening, uh, Greg, I would say. Uh, as, time, as time goes on, uh, certainly temperatures come down. Uh, we have had to respond as an industry uh, to uh, that change. And in doing so, uh, snowmaking in particular, the technology along with that has evolved along with that. You know, uh, higher, lower energy guns. Uh, the less use of, um, of compressed air, uh, onboard uh, computer, computers, uh, technology that really make the most efficient use of the snowmaking. And you're right, it's water. Uh, we happen to store it on the mountains and recycle it. And there's been a lot of uh, analysis done on that, and I think we're getting better at it in terms of the conversion uh, of that. In the case of Jackson, uh, we always used to be known as the too far, too cold, and too steep. And uh, some of that is being uh, mitigated as part of this discussion, not in the proper way. Uh, but having said that, it, it has changed. Uh, and in our case, uh, we have primary routes off the mountain only with snowmaking. We generally get snow on the upper mountains, uh, and that has benefited us uh, very nicely, and it's worked. Uh, now, as time goes on, we're hopefully we're able to hold that. I'd like to talk about something called the Climate Declaration. And I'd like to ask you, uh, this was a group of companies that stepped, stepped up and said, we want the U.S. government to do something. Uh, so, Mike Kaplan, why did you join that, and what do you hope will come of that, joining other companies saying, hey, Washington, get on it? You know, if you really stop and think, how do we, how do we solve this problem? I think the prior panel talked about the first 20% is, I wouldn't, I wouldn't say easy, um, but it's doable through efficiency and some of those other things. But to really tackle this problem at scale, uh, you've got to have government-scale uh, approaches to this. And, you know, if you're going to get um, – if you're going to allow carbon emissions to be free, you can emit carbon uh, with no cost to that externality, in the end, nobody's really going to do anything, not going to do enough to tackle this at scale. Um, so as you start to think about that and think about, you know, okay, how are we going to really get there, acting alone isn't enough. And so uh, we, we signed on to this because it's a collective effort. 
um, because we think collectively we have a stronger voice and can hopefully spur government and President Obama and, and those leaders uh, into action such that you can get results at scale. And you also, Aspen Snowmass, was actively engaged in the state of Colorado uh, and went after coal. So tell us about that. You know, um, as we've looked at our own footprint, and, you know, we need to walk the talk. We need to address our carbon emissions, uh, our consumption. Um, like most companies, I think like the planet, about half of our emissions come from really buildings and our consumption of electricity. And so as we, as we look at that, we say, well, again, we can change light bulbs, but what happens when you're done changing light bulbs? You've, you know, we banned fluorescent, uh, you know, um, incandescent light bulbs, right? So what else is there? Uh, you got to look downstream. You go, well, where is our power coming from? It's coming from coal. And as we look at um, our carbon emissions, there's that direct connection. So uh, we got active in state legislature um, to, tr- to um, increase the regulation of the utilities, to force them, drive them, encourage them uh, to reduce their emissions. And, um, and that's been successful, and we're going to continue to push on that. You're going to wade into the fracking debate? <laughs> That's no, a hot but <laughs> we're looking forward to the science coming out of what are, what are the true emissions associated from, you know, the source all the way to delivery. Uh, is that truly a, a, you know, a bridge fuel or not? We encourage, again, um, some, some uh, transparency on, on fracking fuels and those types of things so we can make sure uh, it is getting, moving us forward uh, and reducing overall emissions. Jerry Bland, Wyoming, big energy state, big coal state. Uh, the owner, family owners of, of Jackson Mountain Ski Resort actually used to be in the coal business. Uh, do you have a similar posture as Aspen Snowmass on coal, or are you taking a little different path? I knew I was going to get set up at some point. <laughs> yeah. Wyoming is the biggest coal producer um, in the country. Uh, it's the third largest oil and gas producer, but it's also the 11th uh, uh, most renewable resources development uh, within the state. So we uh, produce a lot more energy than we consume by far, all 560,000 uh, residents in the state of Wyoming. So no question. Uh, we, are, we are conflicted to some degree. But having said that, being on the edge of the largest ecosystem, meaning the greater Yellowstone ecosystem, our community in the northwestern part of the state is very cognizant of you know, the challenge uh, that we face. And I would tell you that our congressional delegation is as well. Uh, they certainly uh, get lobbied on both sides of that. With the GDP of the state of Wyoming being 30% related to energy, there's no question uh, what is driving. Uh, tourism is the second largest industry, but I would tell you it's a big step down. So we are challenged with that. Our congressional delega- delegation understands where we're coming from. Uh, they ski as well. Uh, and they do come to Jackson and ski. So uh, with the challenges that are represented as part of that, the whole idea is balance and how do you get there in the most efficient way. Uh, we do that through a number of different ways. Uh, we have very segmented steps and challenges along the way that we've uh, attempted to set. Uh, we actually have a uh, step down from from uh, from 95 to 2015 of a 10% reduction in our overall energy uh, usage. Um, set to a specific uh, criteria in terms of number of visits, but it's no easy challenge. And I think, as an industry, I think we've done a pretty good job on the efficiency piece. Have we done a very good job on the advocacy piece? I think Mike and his team and Aspen has certainly led the way in that. 
We've had Ogden Schindler here, uh, your sustainability VP, has been here at the Commonwealth Club before. Dave Brownlee, you're in uh, Canada, British Columbia, where there's a price on carbon pollution. It's not free, as Mike Kaplan said earlier. Uh, how has that affected the economy in British Columbia, and how has it affected Whistler Blackcomb? Well, it's, uh, there is a carbon tax, and it's a carbon, there is a carbon tax, and it's a carbon tax on fossil fuel usage, largely gasoline and diesel. Um, and um, there was, a, you know, certainly controversy surrounding when it was enacted, but uh, the reality is uh, the province has accepted it, and it continues on today. Um, you know, the economy continues to be robust, but people are paying more uh, for their use of, uh, of, uh, of gasoline and diesel today. So, um, yeah, we continue. We're, uh, you know, certainly proactive as a province. Um, you know, we're all trying to do our part in terms of what we can do to make a difference. But as everybody said, it's a, it is a big challenge. So what's the path from here? Uh, let's ask uh, Mike Kaplan. In terms of if, is this industry going to shrink? One report uh, predicted that only four of the 14 top ski resorts would be viable in, in 2100. And what's at stake in terms of jobs and communities if this is going to be a shrinking area of the economy? You know, the stakes are... Um significant in the in terms of the communities that are dependent on on tourism um, I think the industry is, is engaged in adaptation in a, in a serious way both in terms of efficiency on snowmaking as, as Jerry mentioned but also in terms of uh, offering experiences to guests on a year-round basis so uh, you know Whistler has led the way uh, in developing uh, summer business specifically on the, on the mountain biking side and sightseeing and all kinds of incredible things going on uh, we're all seeing that. I can tell you, we did have a couple tough years, and um, you know, we were really uh, waiting for it to start snowing again. And uh, it was a relief to get in the summer season, where guess what? You know, we're going to spin those lifts either way because we're going to have our mountain bike trails open. We're not waiting for <laughs> to get enough snow on them. Um, so I think there is a lot of that going on, um, and uh, so it's making the most of what we have in a sustainable way, um, and also again adapting to. Uh, what Mother Nature is providing, which in, at the end of the day is what I, I would say mountain people are all about. We're, we're used to having to adapt to whatever Mother Nature is going to give, and there, there's extreme variability. Um, so there's a bit of resiliency there, but there's also this fragility that's been talked about, and that's something that we, wor- we should all be worried about, right? Because, you know, Aspen, you know, Colorado River watershed is, you know, sort of a significant watershed for uh, this California and, and a few other states in between. Um, so it's incredibly critical and something we've got to keep focusing on. Jerry Bland, I've actually ridden my mountain bike on your resort, uh, huffing and puffing during the summertime. Uh, it's fabulous, but there were not many people doing it. And I imagine you don't make as much money on mountain bikers as you do skiers. So, uh, you know, there must be limits to summer as an adaptation strategy, as a business diversification strategy. Well, there certainly is. And, you know, summer in Jackson Hole with the gateway to the two national parks. We actually have a, a step up on a lot of resorts, uh, three million people that actually come through Jackson. And because of the bed base in Teton Village, they're able to come and reside there and, and allow us to uh, take care of them for a day while they might be uh, venturing the rest of their week out into Grand Teton and Yellowstone National Parks. And you're right, uh, a small component of that is you know, the, the mountain bike trails or riding the tram to the top to see the Grand Tetons uh, and those kinds of things. But there's no question that we are all somewhat limited in summer. And so it's uh, it's a different experience. Uh, but I would tell you that uh, the opportunity to provide a more diverse uh, 
uh, kind of experience for family uh, in Teton Village in our case uh, is a great uh, responsibility and an opportunity, I would tell you also, as Mike tried to point out and did point out uh, on the education piece. I think it's just another opportunity to educate our guests uh, in the off-season, if you will, uh, about the energy issues and the, and the environmental uh, programs that are out there. Dave Brownlee, it sounds like that some of the players who have some deep pockets will be able to weather this and diversify and invest, but it's really the smaller resorts who might be at risk. The little guys lose once again. Is that is that possible? Well, you know, you know, unfortunately, I think that if you look at the trends in the ski business, that's what we've seen actually over the last 20 years where the smaller resorts aren't able able to adapt from a technology point of view, whether that's snowmaking, whether that's grooming equipment, whether that's uh, detachable lifts. And so that has been some of the history. Um, you know, as we go forward, you know, winter is, you know, still will continue to be very important to us. We as an industry have to do all the things that we can. You know, up in, uh, up, up in Whistler, I mean, one of our biggest successes was developing a run-of-river hydro project. And we actually develop as we put as much uh, power back into the hydroelectric grid BC Hydro as we do take out on an annual basis. And those are the things that you know are not only great for us in terms of our quest to get a zero operating footprint. Those are also great stories to tell to the public that come and visit us on an annual basis about the different things that we're doing. Um, you know, then there's a, then there's the whole adapt, adaptation part, continuing to invest best in technology, whether that's snowmaking, whether that's fuel reduction, whether that's energy reduction. And, uh, and then the, the diversification and, you know, in, this, in the summertime, we, go, we do over 500,000 other visits. That's uh, sightseeing, mountain biking, glacier skiing, and it's a very, very important part of our business. We probably invested over $100 million in that um, ad- adaptation, diversification strategy over the last 10 years. So it, it is significant. It does take resources, but um, we're obviously committed to it, both as a business and as a community. I mean, as a community, Whistler is, you know, takes sustainability very, very seriously. And one of the things you talked earlier about what the, you know, you do individually, what, what does your community do? We have a, a goal in our community that 75% of the people that uh, work in our community live in our community. So we've got resident restricted housing. So those people can ride to work, can take, uh, can take transit, or if they do drive, it's a very short, uh, you know, very short uh, uh, use of their automobile. So all those things do add up, and they all do tell a story. When people come to our resort from around the world, hopefully they can take some of those ideas, talk about them, and take them back to uh, where they're coming from. Jerry Bland, how do you talk to people in Wyoming who might not accept that it's happening, climate change is happening? How do you have that? You're sitting at the bar in Jackson, some, ah, global warming. What do you say? I don't sit at those bars. <laughs> <laughs> Okay, um, at Teton Pines Golf Course then. All right. Uh, it's a challenge, Greg. There's no, no question about it. However, I would tell you that uh, the community in Teton County is, is a microcosm that's a little bit different than the rest of the state. Uh, we had the former governor of Wyoming here, Dave Friedenthal. He said, oh, Jackson's not Wyoming, right? So, And he made a point yeah. during his administration to note that. Uh, uh, Dave is a great governor. He really was. And, and, uh, but, you know, honestly, uh, the collaboration within our state is, is better than you'd expect. Uh, I belong to a group called the, the Wyoming Business Alliance, which, like I said, there's only 565,000 population in the entire state. When the University of Wyoming plays football, it's the third largest city uh, in Laramie when that <laughs> happens. Uh, but I said that the, the Wyoming Business Alliance 
is a collaboration of businesses throughout the state, and it, it is surprising. Uh, you come and you talk to that in, largely energy focus, but ag and, and a whole series of the other industries within our state, and they get it. It's not they're ignoring it. You know, some of the technology that's coming out of University of Wyoming and some of the other schools is terrific. You know, will it will it eliminate fossil fuels uh, right away? No. Uh, but some of the sequestration that Ann mentioned earlier, uh, some of those opportunities, uh, gasification, uh, some of the, the liquefaction and the, some of those opportunities, we think, you know, in terms of clean coal, uh, you know, there may be some opportunities there that present themselves. Jerry Bland is president of the Jackson Hole Mountain Resort. We're talking about skiing and snow at Climate One. Our other guests are Mike Kaplan, president and CEO of Aspen Snowmass Resort, and Dave Brownlee, president and CEO of Whistler Black Home. I'm Greg Dalton. Mike Kaplan, uh, on that point about technology and making things cleaner, you have something, you get part of your energy from a closed-down coal mine. Tell us about that. Yeah, that's um, it's a really exciting project. So uh, about an hour and a half from, from Aspen, there's a little town called Somerset, and um, yeah, it's got one of those bars that Jerry was referring to that you <laughs> probably wouldn't want to stop at and hang out. Um, you know, and it's just a little bend in the road. Uh, but interestingly, we've we've been on this this quest to try and find um, you know clean fuel uh, to to add to our grid. And uh, after looking around, we we were able to meet um, a group of really unlikely people and partners, uh, including the Elk Creek Mine, which is owned by Oxbow uh, Mining. And we don't necessarily agree on climate science. Who owns Oxbow? Um, Bill Koch. Okay. Um, and so we, uh, we don't necessarily agree about, um, you know, whether or not climate change is happening, whether or not it's human caused. Uh, but we were able to engage in a very interesting discussion with them with the help of Vessels Coal Gas, an engineering company, our electricity provider, uh, Holy Cross Electric Co-op, uh, and we all got together and said, okay, let's not talk about what we don't agree about. Let's talk about something we can agree on. And um, like all coal mines, uh, this Elk Creek mine emits methane. And they've been working hard uh, to make it a, a safe mine over the years, and it's a very gassy mine. Uh, so they've got a very sophisticated methane venting system that ends as, you know, uh, you get out of the mine in a pipe, and the methane just was going up into the air. As most people probably know, methane is an extremely potent greenhouse gas, 23 times more potent than carbon dioxide. Uh, so we're able to sit down with, with that crew, and Elk Creek miners were they were really frustrated because they work hard to make the mine safe, and then this resource is just being wasted. They recognize it as a gas. And so we got together with this group, and we said, well, let's capture it. Let's pump it through some generators and convert it to electricity. And so as of today, we've got three one-megawatt generators capturing this methane, uh, converting it to electricity, producing 24 million kilowatt hours uh, of energy per year. Uh, that equals our total usage, two hotels, four mountains, 15 restaurants and ski shops and all that stuff, our annual use of electricity in one year. But even more interestingly, when you look at that conversion of taking this very potent greenhouse gas and converting it into electricity, um, it creates a – it triples our total carbon – uh, output, our total greenhouse gas emissions. So um, it, it's pretty uh, phenomenal the leverage you're able to get with a group of people who don't agree with us on what's going on in terms of climate. But they took something that was just evaporating into the air and made money off it, so they're pretty happy about that. Doesn't Okay. Um, let's talk 
briefly about your own personal carbon footprints, and then we'll get the audience in and here for this second segment talking about skiing and snow at Climate One. Uh, Mike Kaplan, what do you do to manage your own personal carbon footprint? You know, um, you know, I do a lot in terms of changing the light bulbs, and I have uh, solar panels, solar hot water uh, at my house. But honestly, the most important uh, thing that I try to do is is be vocal, uh, be vocal with elected officials, both locally uh, in the state and, and with Washington. And again, try to get them thinking about, huh, this is a problem that this generation has to solve for the next generation, um, and we need to do something and, and, and enact some climate legislation at all levels, locally and nationally. Does Aspen have private jets? Does Aspen Skiing Company? Yes. No. Okay. Dave Brownlee? Yeah, no private jets. <laughs> um, you know, fortunately, live in a pretty tight community with excellent, uh, you know, uh, uh, valley trail system for running, walking, biking, and we utilize those trails. You know, again, uh, we have a very uh, supportive uh, infrastructure in terms of recycling uh, everything from, you know, tin to cardboard to glass to all those things. And, um, and yeah, no, a number of years ago, we started the whole, um, the whole composting process within our house, uh, which is great. And we've got three kids, and, you know, it's something that we talk about. And it's something that, uh, you know, is important from an education point of view. And um, so it's, uh, it's important to us. Jerry Blank, how do you manage your carbon footprint? I, uh, I like to walk. Uh, particularly, I just had a, had a uh, back injury a while back, and so that's my uh, mode of transportation as much as I can personally. And I think, as both of these gentlemen said, have outlined, and uh, and I think it's important that everybody here understand that we're talking about scalability here a little bit. I'm the little guy, 500,000 skiers. These guys are three, four x of of what Jackson Hole is. Our community, however, has really stepped up to the plate, and there's n- a number of different you know, whether it's uh, recycling opportunities and, and solar uh, opportunities and programs that we're just initiating. So I think we're right on the verge of uh, moving ahead in that, uh, not only as a community, but individually. Let's include our audience questions. Welcome. Hi there. Um, in addition to the climate declaration, can you also talk about some other um, mitigation efforts in the ski industry? For example, is there any movement towards um, a collaborative, collaborative effort to set industry standards for sustainability or to share best practices? Mike Kaplan, Aspen has been a leader in this area. Can you tackle that one first? Um, yeah, there are efforts. Uh, actually, the Environmental Committee is chaired by Jerry Bland for a number of years. Uh, there's a group called National Skiers Association, uh, and there's uh, over 300 members. And uh, the National Skiers Association, um, I don't know, probably 10 years ago, uh, created something called Sustainable Slopes. Uh, to try and uh, gather the industry, uh, hired actually work uh, in conjunction with NRDC, uh, National Resources Defense Council, and the Bendel Group uh, consulting on, okay, how do you measure carbon? Um, how do you uh, encourage uh, and engage this National Security Association and its members uh, to be focused on carbon and address it in a, in a meaningful way? So, yes, a lot of activity there, uh, and I think great successes thanks to, you know, this industry gets it. Jerry Bland, would you like to add to that from your time chairing the committee? Um, I was there in the formative uh, early years when we formed the Environmental Committee, and um, um, I think the opportunity to educate one. Uh, trade organizations are difficult, particularly ones that are primarily focused on making payroll when you look at the largest number of our resorts, and there's 300 and some odd in, in, uh, in the National Ski Association trade group. Uh, as a priority, it's hard to elevate environmental efforts, but I would tell you, and Mike uh, indicated, 
through sustainable slopes, uh, through setting standards, uh, through a national um, annual report um, that the ski area has put out. Uh, we've started to refocus and educate and I think uh, started to bring people along in a significant way. We're talking about skiing and snow in the era of climate change. Let's have our next audience question. Welcome. Hi. Uh, I'm curious if uh, this has either happened or you foresee it happening in, in terms of um, obtaining financing for new projects, new capital expenditures uh, at your resorts. Uh, does that ever c come up in uh, questions uh, about the longevity of the industry or um, you know, climate change affecting uh, you know, payback of, of lending. So, Dave Brownlee, yeah. I mean, if, if interesting. Maybe I'll ask that question just because uh, I don't know if you're aware, but Whistler Blackcomb was uh, monetized by Interwest three years ago into an IPO, so we went out and became a public company three years ago. And uh, out on the road, we actually did get asked that question a fair number of times. And, it, you know, it is, it is interesting. And, you know, when you look at the history of weather in, in, in Whistler Blackcomb, what's happened is that we've actually – actually have a, a slightly growing snowpack over the last 30 years. And again, just because of the nature of where we are, et cetera. But we also have a couple glaciers and one that we ski on in the summer. And, you know, certainly in my time there in 25 years, I have seen that glacier deteriorate. And it's not from the winter snowpack. It's actually from the warmer summers. And as the, as the, as the uh, ice melts and more rock is exposed, it heats up. And, um, you know, and, and, and that glacier melts faster. But, um, you know, when we, when we talk to the investment industry, you know, we say, you know what, we're, um, we're a committed industry. We're investing in new technology. In our case, we've got a resort that has over a mile, mile of vertical, and we've invested in the higher alpine of the mountain, you know, new lifts, the peak-to-peak, -peak, which joins the two alpine lifts. And we've also got a very vibrant summer business that we plan to grow. So, you know, we certainly had a big story around that. And, you know, I think as we talk about today, um, you know, certainly in, in my lifetime we will see change, but I believe that our business will continue to be robust. But certainly the, the long-term future of skiing in particular as you uh, start to eliminate some of these smaller resorts, call them the feeder breeders, is, is probably where, you know, we as an industry will be, you know, will be challenged. But, um, you know, again, from an IPO perspective, you know, those guys, once you got past 10 years, they were okay. Let's have our next question at Climate One. Thank you. Yeah, um, in just bridging the two programs, you know, I'm, I, you, you know, skiing has become more and more of an elitist sport with prices, you know, being in my lifetime having gone incredibly high. So it's incredible, you know, it's a very tough sport for the average person to relate to, while the climate change issue is something that affects everyone. So. When I hear the two programs and look at sort of this group as an advocacy group, you know, for climate change, it's, it's – so I guess the question is, why has the industry become even more elitist than it used to be? It's very tough for a family to afford to be able to be a skiing family now because of lift prices. And at the same time, how do you then reconcile that with, you know, an – an advocacy effort around climate change because I think there's a disconnect that is tough to bridge. Disconnect or perhaps an opportunity, but Mike Kaplan, who would like to tackle that? Any, well, uh, what you should do is buy a Mountain Collective Pass because it's a great <laughs> deal. It's only three seventy nine on sale now, mountaincollective.com. <laughs> and not only are you getting a great value, but you're getting these resorts uh, that are doing everything possible uh, to try and increase public awareness of 
you know, the issues of climate change uh, and what they can do about it. Jerry Bland? Greg, is one addition to that is we all, as ski resorts, are represented by uh, uh, our direct costs are about 40 to, well, I would say ours are closer to 60% direct labor costs. And we have a workforce, uh, I think, throughout our industry who come to resorts and actually select our resorts because of their environmental ethic and ethos. And I think that is changing, and I think that is how we're actually broadening our base. Uh, you may say that there's a hierarchy there, but at the same time, I really do believe that that employees choose an Aspen or choose a Whistler or choose a Jackson Hole uh, because of what they're doing corporately to make a difference. But another piece of that question, which was basically said you serve the 1%, is that the opportunity you have because your clientele are influential people who have power and influence in this country. And are you doing everything you can to reach them to say, wake up, you love skiing, do more. Yeah, no, I think that's Mike that's Kevin. our duty as, as ski area operators that have that influential clientele um, that have so such a high percentage of Fortune 400 uh, or Fortune 500 CEOs uh, coming to ski in our areas and to recreate and have that time where you know they're not hammered by all the day-to-day responsibilities and, and their email where they can actually think. And they might be more open to being influenced by, you know, an ad that we have on a, a chairlift or a sponsorship message that says, hey, do you want to ski powder with your kids in the future? If you do, get active, join PAL, uh, do something about it. Uh, but then finally, I would say the industry actually, you know, obviously Aspen, uh, Snowmass, and many of us here um, sort of are true destination resorts where we have extremely high costs of doing business. Uh, trust me, we're not gouging anyone. It's incredibly expensive to operate a, a resort. Uh, on a seasonal basis in such a remote location. Um, but the industry as a whole has done a ton, especially over the last uh, 10 years, as Dave Brownlee was referring to, uh, to really reach out and attract more people and make it more accessible uh, for people to ski, especially those that are located really close to metropolitan areas. So, We've got time for one last question. Let's get this question in for uh, Climate One. Welcome. Hey, guys, thanks. Uh, there's been a lot of talk about the mom and pops and the small to medium-sized skiers or the uh, the feeder breeders. I just heard. I like that. I'm going to borrow that. That's pretty cool. Um, can you guys speak from your perspective as kind of the, the leaders of three of the Mountain Collective, which are the biggest and the best of North America? What's the value for the mom and pops to you guys, to the entire industry, to just in general? Well, you know, I'll certainly speak from uh, my perspective. If you know Whistler Blackcomb on the west coast, just north of Vancouver, just uh, in Vancouver, uh, just right within the city limits, we've actually got three, uh, you know, three areas, uh, Seymour, Cypress, and Grouse Mountain. And, uh, you know, they are the areas that get people into the sport. Uh, you know, it's easy to get to. It's uh, less expensive. It's less of a commitment. Um, so they get people into the sport, and they get people loving it, and then uh, ultimately, you know, come out to enjoy Whistler or many of the other uh, great resorts in British Columbia. So they are very, very important to us. And, um, you know, it's something that we talk about. We talk. We, we participate for us, it's not NSA, but it's Canada West Skiers Association, and it's a very uh, important discussion. And um, we, um, you know, we're proactive. We do what we can to help them out, uh, all ski areas, quite frankly, in British Columbia, because you know that is just going to get more and more people into uh, a healthy uh, in- environment, and, and hopefully continue to ski and snowboard going forward. Uh, we have things, and I'm sure NSA does, where you know we provide. Um, 
you know, opportunities for uh, those folks in small areas to come to our conferences or if we have uh, old equipment or old uniforms and, you know, pass them along. All those things that can make a difference because, you know, they are often just scratching to make payroll. Let's, uh, rather than just making payroll, let's end on an upbeat note here. Who has a, a positive note to end for us, uh, end us on? Jerry or Mike? Noah says it's going to be an average winner. <laughs> So it's come to that. Average room is cause for cheering. Okay, we have to end it there. Our thanks to Dave Brownlee, President and CEO of Whistler Blackcomb, Mike Kaplan, President and CEO of Athlet Snowmass, and Jerry Bland, President of Jackson Hole Mountain Resort. I'm Greg Dalton. Thanks for coming to Climate One, and thanks for cheering average. Thanks, everyone. Show me.